All right, and we are rolling once again, Brother Kevin. How are you today, my friend? We are rolling, man. I'm I'm doing just as well as I was last week, which was just a minute ago. <laughs> How about that? Well, joining us once again today is Nobody knows that's Adams. A, has a clue what we're talking about, man. No, they don't. They have no idea, and I'm not cluing them in either. Well, so I am, here. so I don't look like a complete idiot. So we... <laughs> <laughs> we we are recording these back to back, but it doesn't seem like back to back because it's been a week later for you as yeah. the audience. Yes, we're putting a week between them and we're doing that for several reasons. One, it'll give all of our listeners time to get to the content and to digest it. And it also gives you and, and I an opportunity to take a little break every now and again so that we can get ahead on some episodes and be able to kick back and relax for a week or two or whatever else. And it, it just makes life a little bit easier for all of us, especially our guests. And joining us once again is Brother Wes McAdams. We are continuing our conversation that we left off with. And we had talked about inaugurated eschatology. Wes, thank you so much for joining us. And if you would, go ahead and give us a quick breakdown, uh, just a quick recap of that eschatological perspective of that inaugurated eschatology, the new heavens and new earth. Yeah, so I would say, and, and I don't know that everyone who holds to an inaugurated eschatology would, would believe in the redemption of the creation itself, but I believe that both Jesus has begun to reign and he his kingdom is in existence now, but will reach its full fulfillment at his second coming when sin and death will be destroyed and the creation itself will be redeemed. So as simply as I could, that's that's what renew or I mean uh, inaugurated eschatology and and the renewal of creation is all about. Yeah, and go back go back and listen to last week's episode. If this is the first time you're listening, you need to go back and really listen so that you can understand what we're about to discuss. Yeah, one of the things that we had discussed in the previous episode, and we kind of ended on this note, this was one of the last points that we brought up, is how this is really a holistic, Christocentric view of the second coming of Christ and that eternal um, reign, I guess, for lack of a better term. The, the ultimate fate of those who follow Jesus, it, it tends to dovetail in nicely with other Christocentric perspectives. But it's not without some, some. I don't want to say problems, that's really a stronger word than what I want to use, but it's not without some challenges and some other passages that, that might challenge this perspective. And that's really what we're going to focus on in this discussion is how do we deal with some of the passages that tend to fly in the face of this philosophy or this idea of a redemption of creation and the new heaven and new earth, the the reformulation and reorganization of the created order in terms of an eternal purview. Because there are some passages that seem to to go against this idea. And the the first one that comes to mind, and I know it's it's going to be a little out of order with our notes, but that's okay. It's our show. We can do what we want, is what Peter says over there in, I believe it's Second Peter 3, where he mentions the destruction of all things, how you know, the elements will melt with a fervent heat and all that is will be destroyed. To me, that's the first thing that comes to mind, because as Kevin and I had mentioned in a previous episode back in the day, whenever I used to teach more frequently and I would preach more often, this is one of those passages that I would go to that that would illustrate that all things would be destroyed. And 
implied in that is the idea that there's not going to be anything remade or rebuilt because if it's destroyed, you're not going to remake it or rebuild it. So how does second Peter three, how does that relate to this idea? Yeah. Well, but before uh, let me read that passage too, so that our listeners can know what that passage says. So second Peter three, that's a really good idea. Yeah. Second Peter three, uh, I'll just begin in verse 10. It says, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief and then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth will be, and the and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But, and I'll go ahead and read this. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm, and I'm, I'm glad you read that last verse, too. I was going to tease you and, and make you read the last one, too, you know, where he talked about <laughs> the new heavens. Yeah, new I, well, I was, I was trying to set it up to make it look worse than what it, what nice. it really is, you nice. know. But I thought, <laughs> I'll, I'll go ahead and read that last verse, too, nice. for you. Well, and, and that's what it comes down to, is the question of, because the question isn't, the question isn't, will there be an earth? The question is, what is meant by a new earth? So th- really, we shouldn't even have a question of will there be an earth in the age to come? Because Peter answers that. Of course, there will be an earth. But what is meant by a new earth? Does that mean that this current earth will be redeemed and that it will be made new? Or does it mean that God will create a new one uh, you know, ex nihilo, you know, will he create one out of nothing? Um, and, and either way is an option. But in my mind, the annihilation of the earth without another earth is not an option, you know, according to this text. And, and I'm glad that we're, we're talking, I'm glad we're starting here in Second Peter 3, because when I held to the, what I would call the annihilated earth idea before, this is exactly the text I would go to. And Kevin, you started reading in verse 10, um, but I, I, I would even go back even before that in, in chapter three. Um, and let's look at um, starting about verse two or three, where he says, you know, he's talking about the fact that the Lord coming and that there's going to be scoffers and people will, you know, say that, you know, he hasn't come. Uh, the, they'll follow their own sinful desires. Verse four, he says, they will say, where's the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlook this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. So I wanna stop right there for just a second. And, and look at this passage through Peter's eyes. And what he's saying is that we're actually on Earth 2.0 right now, that there was Earth 1.0, and that was before the flood. And he says all these, people, all these people that say that the Lord's not coming back, and they scoff, and they say, you know, the, the second coming of Jesus, that's not going to happen. The Messiah is not going to come. He says all the people that scoff and say those kinds of things, they overlook the fact that there was an Earth before this one, there was an earth that then existed and it perished in the water. So when Peter says that the earth that existed before the, fl- the flood, the pre-Diluvian world, um, he doesn't mean that the pre-Diluvian world was a different planet earth. He just means it was a different world. That world that existed before the flood 
it was destroyed. Every civilization, every city, every community that existed before the flood is gone. And it was gone when the flood came. And now, now, currently, from Peter's perspective or from our perspective, we're on the second earth. We're on the second world because the first world perished. Now, he doesn't mean that it was annihilated from existence. He doesn't mean that it it ceased to exist and that God created a, a, a totally new world out of nothing. He means that that world was judged and it stopped being what it was before. Um, and then and then he says in verse 7, but by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist, in other words, earth 2.0, you might say, uh, this heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Okay, so here in verse 7, he says that this current world, this current heavens and earth, are waiting for a day of fire, a day of judgment. And he specifically talks about destruction, but but I think we have to pay really close attention. He says the destruction of the ungodly. So specifically, the thing that's going to be destroyed is the ungodly. And then he says, but don't overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. And the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Now, it took me a long time before I realized that there was a textual variant here. Now, some translations in verse 10 say that the earth and the works that are done on it will be destroyed. And some translations say that they will be exposed. Now, those are two totally different words, destroyed and exposed. Um, yeah. To be exposed means to be found, to be uncovered, to be destroyed means, you know, to be destroyed. Uh, and, and it's not a translation difference. It's actually a textual variant. The better text, the better manuscripts say exposed. Um, it, it's less likely that the original said destroyed. So Peter really doesn't say anything about the destruction of the earth. What he talks about is the exposure of the earth. What he says is that the heavens will be dissolved and all of the heavenly bodies will pass away with a roar. Now, we look at that and we say, well, that doesn't make any sense. Why why is he so fixated on the sky, the heavens being destroyed? Well, if you think of earth and heaven like two realms that are separated by a veil. And this is what the the temple, this is what the temple was a picture of. The Holy of Holies is heaven. It's the place where God dwells. And then everything else is outside of the veil by lesser and lesser degrees, further and further away from, from the veil, further and further away from God's presence. And so this veil was a separation of heaven and earth. It was a separation of God's place and man's place. And in the creation, the sky, what we call the sky, the heavens, actually operate as the veil. They separate God's place from our place. And Peter pictures the sky being dissolved, the sky, the heavens passing away with a roar so that the earth and everything done on it will be exposed. It's like it will be made naked. You know, it it will be laid bare before God's judgment. 
God, and that's not to say God doesn't see everything now, of course, but it's to say that on the day of the Lord, the sky will be, and we sing in the song, you know, it'll be rolled back as a scroll. The sky will be torn apart like the temple like the temple veil was torn in two, the sky will be torn open so that now there's nothing separating God from, from earth and God will expose all of the wickedness that's done on the earth and he will destroy all the ungodliness. And again, so, well, so far you, in the text, he oh, hasn't sorry. said anything about the destruction of the planet. He's talking about the destruction of the sky. One, so if, in, in that sense, do you believe that this ties into what a lot of scholars have referred to as that three-tiered universe worldview that so many people in the ancient Near East and in that era believed in, in like the, the firmament, for example, being the hard dome over the flat earth, being the entity, like you just said, that separates the heavens from the earth. And this is something that we, we kind of got into whenever we got into origins. We didn't go too deep into it, but the idea that that, that there in in Genesis that that firmament that the Bible speaks of in the in the creation is what separated those waters above from the waters below and that God's throne was was widely viewed as being in, in existence above that firmament do you believe that in in this account that the apostle Peter is referencing that ancient perspective of the structure of the heavens in that reference to that that coming new creation yeah I think I I mean, it's hard to know whether Peter actually pictured God living in the sky above the sky, you know, in the heavens above the sky, or if he's just saying, if he's using this language figuratively, but I, I, I don't see any way around the fact that he's using this language that way to say God is up there beyond the sky, beyond the heavens, and that on that day, the, that which separates us from him this 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 veil, this dome, whatever it may be, these heavens, these heavenly bodies, that they'll all be destroyed so that the earth can be exposed. You know, again, it's like, you know, peeling back the top of a convertible so that the people inside are exposed to the sun. You know, it's it's peeling back that which separates what's above from what's below. And and yeah, in the ancient, you know, mentality or the ancient picture that earth is below and heaven is above and in between is the sky. And, and I think that's how the ancient people, you know, always would have pictured that. And again, now we know that there's people on the bottom of the earth and people on the top of the earth. And, you know, I, but again, Peter is, he's using judgment language that's familiar to everybody. Something that you said, just very interesting to me because I've never thought of it this way. When you look at second Peter three, this almost seems to be, a passage that is affirmative of your position, not not negative of your position, because yes. when yes. when you look at, especially with that that crowning verse thirteen there, but according to His promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Something that you brought up that I had never thought about, because as as I've discussed before, you know, I believe not only that eternal life is conditional, but I believe that the wicked will be destroyed. And when you parallel that whole idea with what we see in second Peter three is Peter is par paralleling that with a story of, of, uh, the flood. We know for a fact that it was the wicked. It was the people. It was those who were not in the ark that were destroyed. Right. And so that seems to be the whole point here. Peter's is making is, as you pointed this out, that it wasn't the, the earth itself that was ever seen as being destroyed, but it was the inhabitants, the wicked inhabitants upon the earth 
that was seen as being destroyed. And so that's just interesting because you kind of see all of this coming together that it's it's just a, a cleansing, if you will, which we know fire oftentimes represents that that cleansing. And so when you're putting all that together, I, I really see how this passage is not a problem passage, <laughs> but it really is, is more of an affirmative. And I had never heard the point you brought out with the textual variant that the word uh, perish or destroyed may not even be used there. That may not even really be the the proper word that is used. And But I would say, even if it was used, that wouldn't necessarily negate what you're saying, because right. with within the context of 2 Peter 3, the, the perishing and the destruction had to do with the inhabitants on earth and not so much the earth itself. And we see how God speaks about the earth oftentimes is not talking about the actual earth, but the inhabitants. Or we'll, we'll, we'll see when people talk about a certain region, not actually the region, but the people living within that region. And so, so I would say, based upon what I know of, of your position, based upon what I know studying um, this idea of destruction and, and those types of things, even if that textual variant was not there and we still are left with perish or destroyed, it, it could still be argued contextually. It's not talking about the earth itself, but the inhabitants of the earth. Right. And I think that's exactly, I think that's so well said, because even if, even if the earth is going to be destroyed, it's going to be destroyed in the same sense that it was destroyed the first time. <laughs> and that, yeah. that's what Second Peter 3 says, is that, that there the is a coming day, of, there's a coming day of destruction. That's exactly right. And everything will be different. I don't believe that after the return of Jesus, I don't believe that on the day of judgment that that things will be the way they are now. I do believe it will be the same material universe, but I believe everything is going to be made new. I mean, I again, we talked last week about Romans 8, and we talked about how the redemption of creation, we've never seen, for instance, a tree that isn't decaying. Every tree we've ever seen, every atom, every material thing that we've ever seen is in the process of decaying. Everything we've seen, everything we've touched, everything we've eaten has all been decaying. In the, in the day of judgment, everything, I believe, is going to be redeemed from that decay, redeemed from that corruption, so that it's all made brand new. So it won't be the same earth that it is now. It will, again, like our bodies, is it the same body? Yes. Is it a different body? Yes. It, it's both. It's going to be made new and it's going to be totally different than it was before. So let's let's jump over now, unless there's anything else that Lee, you want to say about Second Peter 3 or Wes before, because I want to go to First uh, Thessalonians next, but is there anything else that needs to be said on Second Peter 3? Now nah, let's head over there. I'm good unless okay. Wes has something that he'd like to add. I, I felt like you no, did a great good. job on Second Peter three. You kind you kind of beat that one up pretty good. So all right, we'll go to First Thessalonians four now to to talk about this because there are actually several questions I personally have for you as well with this text. Um, several of them are unrelated to one another, but they are questions about this text and and a couple of them based upon what Daniel had to say last week. I promised Daniel I would ask you these because when he brought up some points, I thought they were very valid and uh, would just be curious to hear what you have to say about them. But the first question doesn't have to do anything with preterism or anything of that nature. It's just a, a fundamental question that when I first started hearing about this idea of the new heavens and the new earth, I thought of 1 Thessalonians 4.17 where Paul says that uh, we are then we who are alive, who are left, will be called up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. 
And when you take First Thessalonians four seventeen and you and you couple it with a couple of other passages, for example, uh, John fourteen three, Jesus said that I go to prepare a place for you. And then in 2 Samuel 12, 23, after the, the baby of David and Bathsheba died, David said, I can't, or, or you can't come to me, but I can go to you. So there seems to be at least an idea from both the Old and the New Testament that heaven is not going to come to us, but we're going to go to it. So how would you explain that? Yeah, great questions. Um, and and, and I, I would affirm that heaven won't come to us. I would I would say the way I would say it is I would say that Jesus is going to come to us or even the way revelation puts it is that God and the city of God are going to come to us. That that heaven right now is this unseen realm and earth is this seen realm and the the seen and the unseen will become one. So when I think when I hear somebody say heaven will come here it it makes it seem like you know, heaven is this movable thing, um, and 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 so I would I would say it more in the sense of Jesus coming here. And I think it's interesting that I mean I I wouldn't even know how many times in the New Testament it talks about Jesus coming here, Jesus coming, Jesus appearing, um, and and so when we think about Jesus and we say his second coming, um, if his intention was simply to show up for a second and then take us to some other place, it would be interesting why they would speak of it that way. Why over and over and over again would the apostles talk about Jesus coming, Jesus returning, Jesus appearing, if it was only for a moment, if if he was really going to take us away? You know, if I was uh, thinking about like with my kids, you know, if, if my parents were going to come to our house, I would say, grandma and grandpa are coming. My parents are coming. I, if, if they were really just going to show up for a second and then take my kids to their house, well, then I would say, you're going to grandma and grandpa's. Like I, I wouldn't talk about grandma and grandpa coming here. I would talk about you going there. But in the New Testament, very seldom, and you pointed out some good passages that m- might hint towards that. But, but again, the, the overwhelming majority of passages talk about Jesus coming. But, but you bring up 1 Thessalonians 4, so let's, let's look at that. And in context, Paul's specifically addressing the fact that there were people that had died in Thessalonica. And, and the fact that the Thessalonians seem to be kind of nervous about what's going to happen with the people who've died. Again, more evidence that the Bible isn't just a matter of how to go to heaven when you die, because the people that <laughs> heard Paul preach were concerned about the people that died. You know, that, that was their concern. Their concern was, well, what about those guys? Apparently, they believed that Jesus is coming. You know, they believed in, in Jesus' coming. And so the fact that some people had died left them with the question, well, what about them? Are they going to miss out on the party? Are they going to miss out on the kingdom because they've died? And Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4.13, we don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that those that you may not grieve as others who, who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. 
So he says, you know, don't worry about them. They're going to be resurrected. And, and in fact, they will, uh, they will be raised first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Now, one of the things that's interesting is that those who believe in an annihilated earth eschatology, who believe the earth will cease to exist and that we'll go and live in an in ethereal place, um, use this as evidence to say, see, it says that we're going to be caught up in the clouds and we're always going to be with the Lord. Well, what it says is we're going to meet him in the air and then we'll always be with the Lord. What it doesn't say in this text is where are you going to go after that? surely nobody believes we're going to spend eternity in the air, like in, in the sky, <laughs> like nobody believes that, right? I mean, even those that believe in the ethereal place, you know, the non-material existence, they don't believe we're going to stay in the air. They think we're going to go to heaven, but they have we, to. We might be a lot of airheads. I don't know. I mean, that, that could be a new, a new view that, that comes up. <laughs> but, but that, that, that idea has to be inserted into the text. Arguably, so does the idea that we would come back down to the earth. But what's interesting is that, the, so, so I would say that it's kind of silent on where we will always be with the Lord. Paul's encouragement is simply, we're going to be with the Lord always. Um, but he uses the word, in English, we translate it as meet, meet the Lord in the air. But this is a very specific Greek word. And, and when this word is used, it actually refers to people that go out and meet a dignitary who's coming into a city. So like the triumphal entry. The triumphal entry is a great example. The people went outside of the city to welcome Jesus in. When Paul would arrive at a city, there, there are times where this passage is used where people went out to meet him. It's a very specific term that means to welcome somebody, especially somebody that's really important or a dignitary. So again, I think welcome is a good English word, a good equivalent. It doesn't, it doesn't mean we go and meet them to go with them. It almost always means we go to welcome them back to the place that we're coming from. And so it's, it's a very specific term. It, it, it's like throwing a party for an arriving dignitary. And so I would argue that this text, again, talks about welcoming Jesus at his second coming and we'll always be with him. Now, again, when you put that together with everything else the New Testament says about the redemption of creation or the city of God coming down out of heaven from so that God can dwell with the people, and you put all of the evidence together, I would argue that this, again, teaches the idea that we'll, we'll meet him in the air, we'll welcome him in the air, but then we will all be together in the new heavens and the new earth. Um, and, and I think that, that this is right in line with that. So, so your point then is really regardless what view you take, no, no one really believes we're all just going to be hanging in the air for, for all eternity. And so we're, we're still go, we're still going somewhere. And, and, and really that's where we have to determine that based upon other passages. So that's, that's how you would answer that, right? You're basically saying that, that does, it it tells us where we're initially going to meet Jesus. If you even take that literally, but it doesn't tell us where we're going to go after that. So I've, uh, so that makes a lot of sense. So I have a question now that's going to take First Thessalonians 4 in a completely different way. And this is based upon what we learned last week from Daniel talking about preterism. And this this was very interesting to me because a lot of this was new information. I had, I had discussed with Daniel some, but I had not really uh, dove into it or delved into it in, in much depth. And 
one of the things that he believes is that all of the passages that are typically used to talk about a future return have already taken place. And he believes that when you look at Matthew 24 and 1 Thessalonians 4 and Revelation uh, and 2 Peter, that all of those are talking about the exact same event that took place with the destruction of Jerusalem. And if people are just listening to this episode and they did not hear that, that's probably not going to make much sense to them. But I would encourage you to go back to listen to that so you can understand what I'm asking if, if people are listening to this and they've never heard that view. But one of the points he bring he brought up that I thought was a, a very strong point, and I'm just curious to see how you'd respond, is in Matthew chapter 24, he parallels... Matthew 24 to 1 Thessalonians 4. And he, he does it because he's showing that the language is either similar or in some cases even identical. And so I'll read a couple of passages here that he used last week. So Matthew chapter 24, verses 30 and 31 uh, says here, it says, Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. And then he parallels that with 1 Thessalonians 4, which, which you just read, but I'll just pick up on a couple of the verses here. I won't read the whole thing over again. But uh, it says in verse 15, For we declare to you by a word from the Lord that we who are alive are not left until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven, with the cry of a command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be called up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. So the question I have for you based upon that is, number one, do you believe that that's talking about the same event? And if not, how how would you explain, I won't say explain that away, but how would you contextualize that if you don't think it's talking about the same event? And if it is talking about the same event, uh, another question that I have for you is, would that not then go against the idea of a future new heavens and new earth? And the fact that Paul ends by saying, comfort one another with these words, one of Daniel's points is that this wouldn't do much encouragement to people living right now if the event he's talking about is not going to happen for thousands of years later. So how would this be considered encouragement? And on top of that, instead of, and, and not just not being encouragement to somebody who, Hey, this is going to happen thousands of years later, but I'm going to, I'm going to tell you something that's going to encourage you. So how would that be encouragement? And then also how would you answer just that whole idea that Matthew 24 is the same going to be the same incident or has been the same incident that did take place uh, there in the destruction of Jerusalem that First Thessalonians 4 is talking about. That's not a stacked question at all. <laughs> anyway. And sorry, I was I was a little wordy on that. My I'm I'm stuck right now to my desk and my one of my cell phones for business is ringing in the background. So I was trying to not listen to that, but uh, sorry if, if some of that didn't no, no, make no, sense. No, but that, did you get the gist that, no, of think, it? Okay. Yeah, I, th I think that makes sense. I, I don't know that I can answer all of that. Um, but I, That's I like say, 50 questions in right, one. Right, exactly. <laughs> but I, I do think that they are all related. I, they're certainly related, but I don't think they they um, they describe the same event. And, and I think the same 
the same question about how would this be in how would this truth be encouraging to people thousands of years before the event takes place the same question and i think more pertinent would be how would christians in thessalonica be encouraged about their dead relatives by the fact that thousands of people were going to die in Jerusalem in a couple of years or in a few years or however many years after this letter was written. I'm not really sure how the destruction of Jerusalem would be an encouragement in the context of don't mourn for those for your loved ones who've died because Jerusalem is going to be destroyed. To me, that doesn't that doesn't necessarily follow. Uh, but I do think there is a relation. And I think that this is where this is where the idea of inaugurated eschatology is so incredibly important. Because I do think that Jesus is teaching in Matthew chapter 24 that he reigns as king and that the destruction of Jerusalem is part of his reign as king. So one passage that I would point out is Daniel chapter 7. And maybe Daniel 7 might tie together these different ideas. Um, in Daniel 7, of course, Daniel is dealing with an incredibly tumultuous time in, in human history, especially for the, the exiled Jews. And, and they're dealing with these rise and falls of different empires and all of these different kingdoms and empires that, that are ruling and will rule in the future. And what's going to bring an end to all of the reign of these monsters, of these great beasts? What will bring an end to their reign? And the answer is the Son of Man this human being who is both in some way human and divine will bring an end to the reign of all of God's enemies. So in Daniel 7, it says, verse 13 and 14, I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. So in this, in this text, this original, the son of man coming on the clouds, it's not coming down on the clouds. It's going up on the clouds. And so Daniel sees this son of man, which is a Hebrew idiom, meaning this human, this human coming up to the ancient of days on the clouds. And he's being presented to the father, to Yahweh, to the ancient of days, and to this human, this son of man. To him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So this becomes this pivotal messianic text to say at some point there's going to be this human being who is both human and also served or worshipped by all the people's nations and languages, who's going to be lifted up on the clouds of heaven and who's going to rule as king and his kingdom and dominion will last forever and ever. Now, I don't believe that's a future event. I believe that's a present reality. I believe that Jesus, that that's exactly what happens at Jesus' ascension, that at his ascension, he begins to rule as king of the world. All authority in heaven and on earth is given to him. And then, of course, the angels say when he's lifted up on that cloud that he's going to return the same way. And, and so Jesus also pictures the idea of his coming in judgment in Jerusalem in Matthew chapter 24. You know, we see that picture of him coming in judgment and the fact that he's coming 
on the clouds or with the clouds is, is a callback to Daniel chapter 7 to say, as the king, as the Messiah, I'm going to come in judgment on Jerusalem. Now, again, Paul uses the same type of language and the same metaphors, the same son of man type imagery about the clouds, saying the son of man is going to come and we're going to welcome him and he's going to raise the dead. Now, just the fact that he comes on the clouds, does that does that imply that it's the same event? No, I don't think it implies that it's the same event, but it's the same, it's the same reign, it's the same judgment. Judgment language throughout the, the Old Testament, throughout the Hebrew scriptures, is often spoken of um, with the day of the Lord language. Um, the Bible Project has done some good videos and good um, uh, research on the day of the Lord. And so that's a good um, resource to use to, to think about the day of the Lord. But the way I like to put it is that days of judgment are always spoken of, it's an end of an era but it's spoken of an end of the world language. So when a kingdom would fall, when a city would fall, when a king would fall, it's spoken of like the heavens being shaken and stars falling. Now, again, it, it's figurative language, but it's, it's using end of the world type language to describe an end of an era type of an event. And the fall of Jerusalem is an end of an era type of an event, but it's not the end of the world. And it certainly wouldn't have been seen by anybody as the end of the world, except the people that are living in Jerusalem or, you know, the Jews that, that are living in the, the diaspora. But, but as Gentile Christians living in the Roman Empire, they wouldn't have seen the fall of Jerusalem as the end of the world, or, or certainly not seen it as the culmination of the entire, the entire scriptures or the entire story of Jesus. But first so, Thessalonians well, 4, sorry, go ahead, go ahead. Well, well, I'm, oh my goodness, we all have something to say. This is such a good conversation. <laughs> well, I was just well, going to follow up real quick. So, so you're saying then that you would, based upon the language used, you believe it's possible Matthew 24, 29 through 31, and, and really that whole chapter could use that language to reference the destruction of Jerusalem, whereas 1 Thessalonians 4 could still use similar language to refer to a a different, distinct, separate coming of the Lord. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, absolutely. Because okay. both of them are talking about the Son of Man coming in judgment, and so of course it's going to use cloud language because that's a Daniel seven reference. So it's it's drawing our mind back to Daniel seven to say Jesus is the King of the world, and that's not something that's that's ever going to end. That's true. That was true. When Jesus ascended, it was true when Paul wrote to Thessalonica, and it was true when Jerusalem fell, and it will be true on the final day that Jesus is the Son of Man who reigns on the clouds. He reigns at the right hand of the Father. That this is this is the new reality. This is the beginning of of the end. This is the beginning of the culmination. Well, and like you said, so much of that figurative language and those Hebrew idioms that are used throughout the Old Testament, they all reference they all reference similar scenarios, but in different specific circumstances. And I like really like what you said about the end of the world and that kind of language. You know, for the Jews living in Jerusalem, whenever Titus rolled into town with his siege engines and everything else, and Jerusalem and the temple were destroyed, that was the end of their world. Yeah. If yes. if a if America, God forbid, were to fall, that would be the end of our world. The world's yeah. going to keep on spinning. 
it's still going to be rotating around the sun. It's still going to be doing its thing. People in Africa and Russia and Europe are still going to be doing their things. But for America, that would be the end of our world. And that's the type of language that, that you're saying that the scripture alludes to in that sense. So do you think that's what the question is being asked? Uh, let's see, in Matthew 24, verse 3, where he says, Tell us when these things will be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age. Do you think that's speaking? Uh, is, is that what you're talking about there? You think that that's what it's dealing with? You know, I think I think it's possible that there's two questions there. A lot of, a lot of scholars think that there's two questions that are being answered. And I, th- I think that in the apostles' mind, they're, they're asking a question, two questions that are tied together. So in their mind, the, the fall of Jerusalem is the end of the age. And so they, I mean, for them, like you said, Lee, that, that's the end of the world for them. You know, and so when Jesus As says, they know it. Right, exactly. So yeah. Jesus says that this temple is going to be torn down. And they say, tell us when that's going to happen and when the end of the age is going to come. And Jesus actually, it's it's very possible that in about verse 35 or 36, he kind of shifts gears a little bit. He he talks about all of these signs of the end of Jerusalem, the destruction of Jerusalem. And I have no doubt that's exactly what he's talking about, is that he will come in judgment upon Jerusalem and that Jerusalem will be destroyed. But then he shifts gears in verse 36 and he says, but concerning that day, and I think he means the end of the age, the end of the end of sin and death. You know, it, it, but concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. And then he goes on to say, there's not going to be signs of that day. And so I, I almost think there has to be two different days that he's describing. One is the end of Jerusalem, and two is the end of the age. And and he says, for the first. There are signs. And when you see these signs, you need to get out of town because Rome is coming and this is not going to end well. And with the other, he says, listen, there's going to be all kinds of people that say this is the end of the age or that's the end of the age. But don't believe that because, you know, nobody knows when that time is coming. And so I I think he shifts gears in verse 36 and actually begins to address uh, the end of the age, whereas the first part of the the answer is more about the, the destruction of Jerusalem. Yeah, and that and so that's we, something that we asked Daniel about last week because that's what I had always been taught and believed as well. And and, and you don't have to respond to this because I, I know we're we're kind of drilling you here, but but to be fair, we do that to everybody. So hey, we I even drill Lee and Lee even drills me. So it's just fun right. to be able to discuss. But this is something that I had never heard of before the way he responded to that. So he went to Luke chapter seventeen, uh, verses twenty through thirty six. And he showed that everything discussed in Matthew 24 is all compiled into one event in Luke's gospel. And so Daniel argues that it's it's the same thing because he says when you, and Daniel, not the prophet, but the guy who spoke, my friend, right. our friend who spoke last week. Uh, so he, he said that when you look at Luke 17, 20 through 37, it, it basically, for lack of a better word, kind of jumbles all of Matthew 24 up so you can't make a clear uh, distinction. And I asked him specifically about the whole idea of Jesus saying, I don't even know when I'm going to return. And uh, the way he answered that, the way he responded to that is that he said that Jesus didn't know the specifics. He knew that, G- that he knew that he that he would be returning within their generation because Matthew 24 says that. And so... In in summary, he argues that if you look at Matthew 24, Jesus said that these things are going to happen within your generation, 
but I don't know when. And then the reason why he believes that that's all one question, not just about the destruction of Jerusalem, but also about the 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 end of the world as they knew it, would be going to Luke 17 and saying that it's got to be talking about the same thing because when we parallel Matthew 24 and Luke 17, it's talking about the the exact same events. And so I don't know if you want to provide any commentary or any thought on that or not, but that that was the way he answered that because those were some of the questions we we asked him last week. And so I don't know. If, feel free if you want to address any of that or not, but it's, it's fine either way. And I don't know how specific this will get to the answer on that particular question, but one of the things that I found really helpful is a metaphor about prophecy. And I think that this helps because I really don't care for the the phrase like dual fulfillment. Sometimes people talk about dual fulfillment, like, like this prophecy was fulfilled in dual ways. I think that's one way to talk about it, but I think maybe a better way to, to think about it is that it's, it's the metaphor of a mountain range. And some theologians will talk about prophecy like a mountain range. And from a distance, when you're, it, I, I grew up in Northwest Kansas, and when we were driving across the plains of Kansas into Eastern uh, Colorado, driving towards the, the Rocky Mountains, you get to a point where you can see the mountains at a distance. And from a distance, they're almost two, two dimensional. You just see peaks. You don't see anything in between the peaks. You just see all of these peaks that run the, the distance of the horizon. Now, when you get into the mountains, you realize there might be 20, 30, 50, 60, 90 miles in between different mountain peaks, that there are long distances in between these mountain peaks and in between are huge valleys that you couldn't see or even perceive from a distance. And that's the way prophecy kind of works, is that when the prophets, or Jesus in this case, would say, this judgment is coming, and and everything kind of looks jumbled together, and you look and you say, oh, that must all be one package deal. That's all going to happen at one time. Well, then when you get up close to it, then you realize, oh, well, this peak was over here and this other peak isn't coming for a while yet. I, I think that's the way prophecy works, that when you look at, I mentioned Isaiah chapter 11 before, and you know when we look at some of the things that the prophet said about the, the reign of the Messiah, you would think that it all was going to happen immediately. And that's just not the case, that, that the Messiah began to reign, but sin and death weren't destroyed and still aren't destroyed 2,000 years later. So there were huge valleys in between the peaks, but all of the judgment is still coming. All of the judgment is still true. So when the prophets could look off in the distance and say, God is going to judge Rome, or God is going to judge Jerusalem, or God is going to judge Babylon, or God is going to bring this kingdom down, and God is going to make a new world. Well, that doesn't have to happen immediately upon the heels of the other, but it all is going to take place. It's all is going to happen. And so Jesus could look into the future and say, all of these things are going to take place. It doesn't necessarily mean they're all going to take place at the same time. It just means God is going to make everything right. He's going to bring down every enemy and he is going to make all things new, that that is God's ultimate plan. And so from a distance, it might look closer together than it does when you're up close. 
Well, and I think that's a really helpful analogy. I really like that idea of the mountain range because like you're talking about in Northwest Kansas, I live in Oklahoma. Well, Kevin lives in Oklahoma too, and we have hills here, but whenever you go into Colorado, like you said, it's almost two dimensional. And then as you get closer, you realize, oh, holy smokes, you know, you're not going to walk from one peak yeah. to yeah. the other peak in the span of about two hours. I mean, that's, you know, it'd take you days, right. if not a couple of weeks to get from one to the other. And, and that is really helpful, especially whenever we consider and we revisit what Peter said, you know, one day is this a thousand years unto God, you know, he exists outside of space and time. He is not bound by time as we are. Yeah. But one of the things that, that you touched on a little bit and you briefly mentioned, I'd like to ask this question. One of the things that Jesus says there in Matthew 24, and it can be argued that he is referring to the destruction of Jerusalem, um, is that these things will before this generation passes away, these things will take place. There are some standing here who will not take taste death until these things come to pass. And then in the last episode, we had referenced the celestial imagery in Revelation 20 and verse 21. And I can't help but think about what John says in his revelation in chapter one and verse one. It, he says, oh, where is it? The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants things which must shortly take place. And that's one of the one of the markers that a lot of preterists will use whenever they discuss end of time and they discuss eschatology is this idea that these are things that are shortly going to come to pass. These things are shortly going to come to pass. These things are shortly going to take place. Yeah, in Revelation one seven, uh, also t- I think Daniel brought this up last week. Those who pierced him will see him too. So they so he brought that up as well. So how does how does that relate to this idea and? How does one explain those passages in light of of the theology of the new heavens and the new earth? Yeah, I think that's a great question, and and I would agree that you know that especially I I think the first part of Matthew twenty four has to be talking about the destruction of Jer- Jerusalem, and I think verse thirty four is great evidence of that, and I, I think that's where the inaugurated eschatology that says the Son of Man is reigning now presently and has already come in judgment and will come in judgment. That's where the, you know, the, the inaugurated part of it rather than the realized part of it would be. But I think that that's where we can agree is that we can see Jesus preaching to his immediate context, to the people in his immediate context, saying this generation won't pass away until these things happen. In fact, so much of Jesus' ministry was warning about the, the destruction of Jerusalem was to say, if you stay on this path, if you continue to rebel against God and you continue to fight against Rome and you continue to not turn the other cheek and not go the extra mile and not build your house on my teachings, then you will be destroyed. And, and he's not, again, talking about some spiritualized destruction. He's talking about, a, for their context especially, he's saying, you are going to face this destruction and it's going to be in this generation because you won't listen to me. In fact, in Matthew chapter 23, that's what it's all about. He's looking over Jerusalem saying, I would love to gather you up as a mother hen gathers her chicks, but you won't and you won't listen to me. And because you won't listen to me, you're going to be destroyed. And so that was true for Jesus' generation. Now, I would argue that those things continue to be true in every generation, that if we don't listen to Jesus, that a lot of times, collectively, there is this sort of in-the-moment type of consequences for that. If we collectively continue to act like the, the zealots did in Jesus' day, we will suffer destruction in a very real, right-now sort of way. 
But that's not to say that there isn't this final culmination of all things, that what's true sometimes in the moment might also be true in the grand narrative of God's eternal plan. And I think that's what Revelation bears out. I think that's what Daniel bears out. I think that's what even Jesus in, in the latter part of Matthew 24 bears out, that that what's going to be true of this generation is also going to be true of the entire world. That that and I think John would say that in Revelation, that he was encouraging the people of his day that your enemies will be destroyed and you will be vindicated. You will be raised up. You will be saved. You will be, you know, all of these wonderful things, that these promises that God has for his people. And, and I think that it's, it's couched in this sort of eschatological imagery and pictures, this apocalyptic language because it's true for every generation. It wasn't just true for the people of John's generation. It's also true for us. There are still beasts in the world. There are still kingdoms and empires that act like beasts, and God will bring them all down. Maybe he'll bring them down before the end of the age, or maybe he'll bring them down with the end of the age, but one way or the other, God will be victorious. His people will be victorious, and he will raise his people up. And so I, I think that that sometimes we we think very binary. It either has to be this or it has to be this. But but I think that what's true in the immediate context is also true in the final context as well. So I would say then, after listening to to Daniel and you, it seems like the the main differences because the the filters are so different. I think I think they're just so different. The frameworks are so different, but. I see in Daniel, what he does is he takes all the passages and say, this this is all talking about the same thing and only the same thing, only this one event. And whereas you would take these different passages and say, well, yeah, this is all judgment language, but it can be referring to different language or to, excuse me, to different events. Is that what you're saying pretty much? Yeah, absolutely. And and, and a yeah. lot of times, like with the first part of Matthew 24, I would agree. I mean, I, I do think that's about Jerusalem, but I think that that there's still judgment to come, that that wasn't the last and final day of the Lord. Yeah. Well, I think that's a perfect, um, yeah, I think we've answered pretty much everything that we were wanting to cover in this section. And I yeah, think you did a great job. A yeah, I think that's a perfect place where we can probably go ahead and wrap this up. Is there anything else that you want to say on this topic or on any other topic for that matter? <laughs> yeah, you want to preach a sermon or something? I mean, we got to be <laughs> Hey, I, Wes, I just want to say thank you so much for coming on because uh, what what you're providing to our audience is is vital. It's, it's something that I can't do and Lee can't do because we could go over the new heavens and new earth based upon what we have researched just on the surface and maybe based upon a few articles we've read, but we would have not been able to do it justice, uh, much less give commentary on certain passages. And so we really appreciate you you doing this and then also taking the questions to examine this and engage in this. We want our listeners and really uh, hopefully all Christians to be able to kindly and lovingly engage with one another to talk about not just this issue, but all issues, because we, you know, we have isolated ourselves, I feel, as Christians, where we study in a vacuum and we only hold on to our own positions. 
And it makes us uncomfortable when we hear something that we've never been taught before. And this new heavens, new earth, this may be uncomfortable for a lot of people, but we hope that people will listen to what you have to say, to uh, be open and honest with an open mind, to consider the things you had to say. And even if they end up not agreeing, instead of dehumanizing, you come away saying, wow, Wes is a very sincere Christian who is a very honest man who studied the Bible, who's come to this conclusion, and he's my brother in Christ. Yeah. 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 That's, I, that's I wish what that, we... Sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead, brother man. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, I was just going to say, I wish I wish we would take that that type of approach. I mean, that's exactly what Paul seems to say in Romans 14. We've got, we've got to have that kind of attitude with each other and welcome each other, even when we don't see eye to eye on everything. And that that type of posture is so valuable, and that's really the only kind of posture that can lead us to any kind of unity upon this earth. Because whenever we demand that everyone acquiesce to our particular viewpoint or perspective, then we're really not driving at unity. We're driving at conformity and a desire to mold everyone to fit our preconceptions and our ideologies. And that that flies in the face of what it means to follow Jesus, at least as far as I'm concerned. Well, people are so- studying less now more than ever in, in, in a lot of different circles because they're afraid of coming to a conclusion that doesn't conform to the people at their own congregation. And, and that is such a dangerous thing because now instead of people studying more, they're, they're studying less. They're just holding on to the beliefs they were taught. And this is why we're doing what we're doing. We want people to know there are alternatives. I, I used the word option earlier, and some people may not like that term. I don't mean to say that, that, uh, that, that there is no such thing as absolute truth. But as, as I told Lee, the on uh, episode, I don't know when this is going to air. This may be a past episode or a future episode because we recorded quite a few uh, that haven't aired yet. But I told him that any conviction that, that you hold and that I hold, we should believe is right. I'm not asking anybody to not believe that the conviction they currently hold is right. Other, otherwise, they shouldn't be holding it. You should, you should hold the, the only conviction you should hold is the one you think is true. But I believe that I can be right and you can be wrong while not believing you're wrong for being wrong. And that is the, the, the bigger issue at hand is we have been so afraid to discuss issues because we think in, in believing somebody else is wrong, that means they're wrong for being wrong instead of realizing, hey, they've just come to a different conclusion. And I may come to that conclusion in the future, or they may come to the conclusion I'm at, or we, mo- we both may abandon this and jump on a different conclusion. That's part of that growing in grace and knowledge in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, that doesn't affect our relationship with Jesus. But as you pointed out, and as Lee pointed out when he's talking about the science, these types of things don't matter to people until they do matter. And that's why it's important for people to understand there are many different ways of understanding Scripture. And I want to reiterate, I'm not saying you can just go to the Bible and come away with any belief you want to. But the fact is we have to be open and honest enough to realize good Bible students have come to different and oppositional interpretations, and we need to be willing, instead of dehumanizing those that don't agree with us, to listen to what they have to say. Absolutely. Well, Wes, where can people find more of your work on the internet? Where can people find you and your your blog, your any books that you've written, your podcast? Where can people find you, brother? Radicallychristian.com. That's you can find my my blog there, my books there, my podcast there, and um, that's that's where I where I hang out online. 
Awesome. Well, brother, thank you so much once again for taking time out of your schedule to join us for this discussion and for last week's discussion. We really appreciate it and would love to have you on again in the future to maybe discuss more you know, eschatology or maybe even a completely different topic. But that's something you'd be down with. We'd love to have you back. This was a really fun discussion. I really enjoyed it. This has been great. Thanks, guys. I appreciate you both. Awesome. We appreciate Brother Wes. We also appreciate all of you out there in podcast land. We appreciate our listeners and all that you do for us. Please continue to share our podcast with others. Like us on Facebook. Engage with us there. Would love to visit with you. If you have any questions or concerns about this or any other topic, any anything you'd like to hear us discuss, anything like that, reach out to us and let us know. We have our contact information in the show notes. We'd love to hear from you. Give us that five-star review, and we will see you all again very soon.